0: Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorff, a political scientist, currently at Daytona State College, but soon to be Oklahoma Christian University. I'm joined this week by Ken Katkin as we tackle a busy week in politics. How's your week been, Ken? Oh, it's been pretty good. I had a
1: vacation week, which is always nice.
0: Oh, I wish I could say the same thing. I'm in the midst of packing a house and uh, packing children, which uh, that's not as much fun. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, So, Ken, are you ready to hit our big stories this week? I sure am. Well, I think what we're going to start with, uh, listeners, this week is we're going to take a look at the conduct report on the FBI. So on Thursday, the Justice Department Inspector General issued a report on the FBI's actions during the 2016 election. There is a lot to this report, and there is a lot of commentary on this report. And I think we're really going to try to separate those two things. So let me start by just outlining the report itself, and then we can kind of move on to the responses to it. Uh, The inspector general argued that James Comey was, quote, insubordinate, end quote. He did not follow FBI procedures when he held a July 2016 news conference about the Clinton investigation, And further, he did not follow procedure again when he told Congress about uh, days before the election about new Clinton emails. Further, he even failed to inform the attorney general at the time, Loretta Lynch, about his recommendations not to pursue charges. In a moment that CNN rightfully calls ironic for Clinton supporters, Comey also used his personal Gmail account for FBI business. So in short, Comey was insubordinate. The FBI acted in a slow and inexcusable way. Several investigators showed some real bias, including some text messages between FBI agents indicating that they'll, quote, stop Trump from becoming president. Uh, But the big end of the report, though, was that there was no systematic bias in the outcome of the investigation with Hillary. So what does this mean? It kind of seems on the commentary side that, For Trump, it vindicates his actions. And for uh, Democrats, it vindicates that the Clinton case was not biased. As multiple uh, outlets are noting, quote, everyone is claiming victory. So Ken, what do you think about this, both its content and the response to it?
1: Well, I'll I'll start with the content um, and my own response to it. uh, and And then maybe we can talk about other people's response to it. But I, I didn't think, uh, you know, I, I can't say I've made it through all 500 pages. I <laughs> I have I have made it through the parts that the news media has focused on the most, I think. And uh, um, I, 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 I think the report is a very strange report um, because, um, for instance, I, I, I agree with the way you characterized it, that it it somewhat justifies uh, Trump's decision to fire Comey. Um, but I think it, it doesn't. It, 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 it isn't clear enough about the fact that um, there, there was no, there, there was tremendous bias uh, against Hillary Clinton. and I think the, the the report shows that there was tremendous bias against Hillary Clinton, but then when it states its conclusions, it doesn't state it that way. But every there's absolutely nothing in the report that indicates that Hillary Clinton ever did anything illegal or wrong. Um, and so the whole idea that there was this investigation, that it went on, that it reopened, that, that, that Comey announced, uh, when he first announced that he was closing it, he still criticized Hillary Clinton, and later when he reopened it, all of that is against a context where the report makes very clear that she never did anything wrong. Mm-hmm. And, sim- and, and similarly, the, 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 the report, um, uh, you know, somewhat, um, uh, in the claims of bias, which it does make and which you mentioned, um, they seem to be very unsubstantiated. You know, they they they, they, they point out that um, some of the FBI uh, uh, officers um, expressed political opinions, which is not it's not an improper thing to do. There's no there's no uh, claims anywhere that they acted in any way that was that was uh, biased against Trump. Every every bit of bias that's mentioned anywhere uh, by anyone. Um, is, is bias against Hillary Clinton and the, the, in terms of actions. Now, certainly there's statements and texts and emails where a couple of the agents um, seemed very concerned about a Trump presidency, but there's not, there's not a single uh, claim anywhere in the report that those agents actually did anything uh, improper to act that out. And in fact, those agents, the same agents that were so worried about a a, a Trump presidency, the only thing they really did in terms of the Hillary Clinton investigation was try to keep uh, moving that investigation forward. They did not ever anywhere in the report um, do anything that would seem to me to indicate that they tried to stop that investigation.
0: Yeah, I mean, and I think that you're onto something there in the sense that one of the points that Trump has made is that he loves it except for the end, (laughs) right? You know, he loves everything but the conclusion, which is that, you know, there's no systematic bias. I think the thing that makes this particularly difficult, uh, and and I think you're teasing that out, Ken, is the fact that you have. Uh, FBI agents in this case probably talking in overly glib ways and as, as a result it even if it hasn't affected what has actually happened which i think that's what's kind of the the bottom line outcome from the re- from the inspector general's report it taints The agency in the sense that on the one hand, you have agents who are making these kinds of claims that you hope that they wouldn't be talking about in this kind of way. And on the other hand, you then have uh, a head of the FBI who is taking a series of actions that are not consistent with the precedent of the FBI. And so I I think that's where you kind of get this... Uh, potential well, rhetorical win for both sides.
1: Yeah, I, I, it's it's, but that's only because it's being spun. Um, if you really deconstruct that, the head of the FBI is violating FBI policies in ways that are redounding entirely to the benefit of Trump. Whereas the subordinates um, who are in private emails uh, expressing, you know, that they would prefer Hillary to be uh, elected, um, they didn't violate any FBI policies. They didn't do a single thing uh, wrong. They didn't abuse their authority in any way um, to, to implement um, their, their political preferences. They're entitled to have political preferences. They're entitled to have private conversations with each other uh, about their preferences. So, so all of the so-called bias um, against Trump, it, it's it's not real. It's just people who um, have a, a political view, which is not uh, improper. Whereas at the top, the bias against Clinton was very very real. It it, it led to. Um, extreme violations of, of, of longstanding policies that were improper and that actually flipped the election.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't know if I'd go so far. I think it's difficult to say if that's what caused the, the, the election itself. But I think you're right that this is not a particularly good report for, uh, uh, for Comey at all, because you're absolutely right. He's the one here who's at the center of this. And he kind of tries to play it as the well, I'm damned if I do and if I'm damned if I don't kind of situation. But really, had he simply followed policy, yeah, <laughs> you, know, yeah. you know, maybe he would have been criticized. OK, fine. I mean, everybody can get criticized, but he would not be considered insubordinate.
1: Yeah. And I mean, on the issue of whether he flipped the election, the, the very best evidence is that he did. Uh, Nate, Nate Silver looked into that question um, way back at the time and did it based on the differences between the polling on people who did early voting before uh, the, the date of the second Comey announcement, um, and, the, and, the, and people who voted on election day, and you see a six-point swing. And uh, it, it's really hard to explain such a sudden, fast swing in such a short period of time right around the Comey announcement, um, other than to attribute it to the Comey announcement.
0: You know, I, I actually had seen that, and I think that was uh, it was a, a, a good attempt at trying to piece out a variable. I will say, though, that on levels that probably are more than what we can get into here, I did take some mathematical issue with the way, as, as a fellow researcher, that he yeah, that he produced that study. Um, that I think that he had some omitted variable bias uh, in that, um, but. That's that's probably <laughs> we want to get a little too statistical here, um, yeah. but uh, no, to, to,
1: to take it yeah. back to what's actually in the report um, in, in the inspector general report. I mean, the, the, the Comey never should have criticized Hillary Clinton in the July press conference where he where he um, said that they weren't going to charge her with anything. Well, I it think was even
0: complete, more specifically is the one with Congress. Yes. Yeah. Yes. When he's not informing the attorney general. I mean, I, that is right. just I don't even know. But yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it's
1: the, 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 in, any, in any investigation, it's improper to be um, leaking about it before they bring indictments. And in political investigations, it's per, they don't even bring the indictments until after the election. Well, um, and not only so- that, in
0: this case, he's, the pro- I mean, he's not the one who should be deciding whether or not you're having a prosecution. That, that, that's the Justice yep. Department.
1: Right, and they didn't have a prosecution. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, nobody, no, you know, Hillary Clinton was not indicted, and all he did is trash her again and again and again and not in, in indict her. So, I mean, his conduct was completely reprehensible, and it's not at all comparable to what Peter Strzok or Lisa Page did. They did nothing wrong. Nothing. It's not wrong for them to talk to each other about how the, they don't want Trump to be elected. Um, that might indicate you know, that there's, you should look around to see if they actually did anything wrong, but they didn't, and the inspector general's report doesn't say that they did.
0: No, I, I agree with you on that front. But uh, as a guy who lives in a state who has uh, we call the Sunshine Act, meaning that every every email that you send can be uh, asked for and produced. There are, I would suggest that they they were not setting themselves up for a, for a happy outcome when you know that this is going to be such a big deal. But I agree with you. That doesn't change whether or not. Uh, that what they did was wrong or biased. Uh, it, it probably just wasn't It wasn't yeah. the most savvy move, I guess, is probably a better way of putting it.
1: Yeah, I, I don't have a problem with um, those, their, their emails with each other being released. I, I, I have more of a problem with the inspector general concluding that the mere fact that they had political opinions uh, means that they did their jobs improperly. I mean, you, you and I have political opinions, and I hope nobody says that that means that we're doing our jobs improperly.
0: Yeah, what what I'm suggesting, though, is, is that if I were to transmit those beliefs through my, say, my Daytona State email account, I can imagine that that is then going to put me under a microscope in a way that I probably would rather not.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, people may know, um, you know, that you're a conservative professor, uh, but they are a libertarian professor, but 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 that's not itself improper. And if someone was going to look at that and say, "Well, see, he has a he has a, a political biases," so therefore he's a it, he's not doing his job properly as a, a as a professor. Um, I think you can see that that would be an unfair accusation, and and I think that that uh, is um, the only thing that was really said against Strack and Page. No, agreed, agreed. Yeah, so I so I didn't I didn't feel that the inspector general I felt like he really tried to bend over backwards to say that there was sort of bias on all sides. In fact, I think he makes it out that it was maybe a form of bias when Strzok suggested that the FBI should focus more on the Russia investigate the Trump Russia investigation than the Hillary Clinton investigation. And that itself seemed like a strange conclusion for the inspector general to reach because the Hillary Clinton investigation was already over at that point. It was closed. There was no reason to think that there'd be anything on the Wiener laptop that was any different than what they'd seen before. And in fact, it wasn't, you know, the the material on the Wiener laptop turned out to be entirely consisting of emails they'd already seen before. And and based on everything they'd seen before, they'd already closed the case and found there were no charges to bring. Meanwhile, the Trump-Russia stuff was a continuing ongoing um, uh, crime in progress that they needed to be investigating at the time. Of course, they should be prioritizing that higher than reopening a closed investigation based on basically no new evidence. And, and the inspector general uh, tried to make it out that um, there was some kind of bias involved uh, when when Strock um, suggested that uh, it's more important to investigate an, an ongoing criminal conspiracy against the United States that hasn't been investigated yet um, than to reopen a closed investigation based on no new evidence of something that would have been relatively trivial anyhow.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think on the facts there is, I think you're you're accurate in many ways. I don't think that that's I don't think that's the takeaway that most people are going to come away with it though.
1: Uh, no, Trump. Trump is spinning it hard that this somehow exonerates him. But and I think the the I think the report is is a little too um, uh, tr- trying to be even handed, based on if you really read the things that it can, if you read the facts that it finds, and and didn't read its conclusions and just read the facts that it finds. I think the the uh, the only conclusion I could take from it is that all those facts indicate that there was tremendous bias uh, against Hillary Clinton um, uh, in the FBI.
0: Yeah, but you know the 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 rhetorical situation is such is that you have a rebuke to to Comey, and as a result, that seemingly vindicates the position of Donald Trump, uh, and not the position of those who had for a while idolized uh, Comey. Uh, And and I think that's where the mileage is going to come from.
1: But the rebuke to Comey is that he treated Hillary Clinton unfairly and threw the election
0: to Trump. Yeah. <laughs> that, that,
1: I mean that's what he did.
0: Ironic and, and and yet I think I think that's where the rhetorical win is. Uh so I mean I I, I agree with your analysis. Yeah.
1: Well, and I and I have no sympathy for Comey at all. I I I'm, I'm I'm glad he was fired. I don't I I don't I I'm glad he was fired for the very reasons that uh the Rosenstein memo said that he was fired. It just so happens that Trump uh, told Lester Holt on national television. That's not that why he was doing. That's it. not what we
0: doing. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, this is what I said I was going to do, and, and yeah. that's one of the cases where you know it, it's hard sometimes to tell where Donald Trump, the 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 brilliant social media strategist, because I think in some ways he is, and the bumbler, you know, end and begin. But, you know, and I think that's kind of a a good movement there, that conversation to talk about another kind of Donald Trump moment, because on June 12th this week, President Donald Trump met with Kim Jong-un in Singapore after a volley of rhetoric concerning uh, the meeting. So we've, we've talked about this leading up to it. So what have we learned about the North Korean meeting, if anything? So what's new? There's a few things I think are new, Ken, and then I'm I'm curious about what you think. You know, one, obviously, unlike, I think, most of us on this show, uh, most Americans have thought that this meeting was a good thing. 63% of Americans thought it was a good idea, and that includes half of Democrats. Only 20% have argued it's bad, if you take a look at CNN polling. Um, The ultimate statement, as we have all mentioned, was going to be the outcome, and as the New York Times has put it, quote, contains polite platitudes, end quote. In other words, it's largely empty. There's not a whole lot there other than the symbolic nature of both sides agreeing to basically one big thing. So the big takeaway is Trump is going to suspend joint military exercises with South Korea, and North Korea says they're going to freeze weapon tests. Uh, Obviously, there's some fallout from this because clearly Trump in his own way decided to not inform south korea about this possibility beforehand for the freeze for the military uh and we now have kind of this lingering uh analyst question concerning how much clout does kim jong un get out of this and how much standing in the world does that give him trump seems to argues that it's gived uh uh kim some additional standing and he's kind of joked or he says he's joked that he likes the way that people sit up and listen when kim jong un as uh, people when he talks uh but you know what, what's that kind of ultimate symbolic outcome? I think is kind of that last question. So, what do you think, Ken?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it's interesting. So, on the, on the politics of it, um, you know, I, I guess I would put myself in that majority that you, you mentioned that thinks it, 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 it would be a good thing if, the, uh, if America uh, and North Korea uh, had serious talks about um, disarmament or even just about a thaw in hostilities. Um so so when when people hear that that's what's going on and they think that's a good thing yeah i think that's a good thing too um on the other hand i don't think trump um at all um has even the understanding of uh, uh of of what the us's goals there uh, are or should be nor does he have much interest i don't think in doing anything other than just having these photo ops um it doesn't seem to me he got any anything out of north korea and he he did Give away, I think some, you know, some other concessions. Not only the uh, the stopping the military exercises, but 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 just um, you know, generally trying to um, put rehabilitate North Korea um, in terms of its legitimacy uh, without asking it to do anything in return. So um, basically, giving it a stage. Yeah, yeah. So I don't, I, I don't, I don't see that anything good actually came of it. Although I agree that um, it was a good opportunity. So the the polling numbers that you're looking at um I'm not sure exactly when those polls were taken but I think the the idea of the talks um I Thursday think was night, a good Thursday idea night. yeah Thursday night so that was after so that was after the talks yeah I don't know I don't I don't see that it turned out in retrospect to have been a, a valuable exercise but I I think there was the potential last week that it it could have been a valuable exercise
0: yeah I I think What Trump gets out of this is obviously he gets the the rhetoric of a win, a seeming win. Uh, And I agree with you, uh, and I think we're going to have similar political, ideological positions on the idea that countries coming together and talking, even if you don't have any major substantive outcome, is in general a, a positive, a good thing. What is worrisome in the case of, of course, kind of the counterpoint for North Korea is is that you give a dictator uh, a stage, you give him an opportunity to kind of... Uh, position himself. As a matter of fact, it appeared this morning that there is a giant now propaganda vi- video, a 45-minute propaganda video. I mean, does anybody actually watch that whole thing? Um, <laughs> you know, with Kim Jong-un's, uh, uh, you know, what he did on the world stage with Trump, and, and that's being released in North Korea and other places right now as we speak. And, and it's difficult to weigh, you know, well, how much is the talking worth the the photo op? And in that I don't have a really good, clear, easy answer for that one. If I did, I'd run for office. But
1: Yeah, I mean, I would also say that I, I think that, you know, if you bring the, the what happened last weekend at the G7 into this, where, um, you know, Trump first uh, tries to create a lot of tensions and hostilities with our actual allies, um, and then immediately goes and tries to tilt towards uh, uh, North Korea. Um, you know, I, I look at that in a context of... Um, I think it's more evidence of of Trump Russia. I mean, here he is carrying out Russia's foreign policy objectives in both places um and it that's a little bit troubling to me, I would say, you know, breaking up the Western alliance and uh, you know separating North Korea a little bit from China so it will tilt possibly a little bit more towards russia um it seems it seems to me you know what every time Trump steps out on the world stage. It's it's with a Russia first foreign policy, and I think he did that in both places this week.
0: You know, I think if if I had to kind of analyze Trump on this particular one, it seems to me he is a trade isolationist who wants a military win. So I think what he's he's hoping for is the the, the America first on trade theory, which we'll talk about a little bit more when we talk yeah. about the China tariffs, uh, and then I think on the kind of the non so international relations when you're talking about non trade issues he clearly wants to be the 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 talk the, the 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 he wants that kind of win he does he wants to be blustery on trade policy that's his thing and i don't i don't even sure if he quite understands what it means when you're not talking about trade i mean this is the guy who's while he's in north korea saying, well look at your beautiful shores we could put a hotel up um, I think that's the side that he's thinking about.
1: Yeah, I mean, that could be right, but it's 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 hard to think of anything he's ever done uh, on the international stage where you could say, well, that's not what Putin would want him to do right? Everything seems to come back to, well, maybe he's not doing it because of Putin telling him to, but if, if Putin would tell him what to do, this is what Putin would tell him to do. And I think stirring up, uh, you know, tensions for really no reasons, starting, starting trade wars with our traditional allies over basically phony issues, um, and then going right to uh, North Korea, which has been um, a, Chinese, a Chinese client state, basically, and trying to peel them a little bit off of China, which I think would only mean that they would tilt towards uh, Russia, um, you know, I, I just can't really put that in another context. Now, I don't I don't think he did anything in, in, in North Korea. I don't think these talks produced anything. I don't think they'll come to anything. And I I'm certainly open to your idea that it's just about the photo op uh, more than anything else, just about the the political posturing. But it, it, I don't think it's inconsistent with a, a, a theory that um, he's just uh, the tip of Putin's spear. You know, I think it, it could look it's cons- it's consistent with either hypothesis, I think.
0: Well, I mean, it's, it's a difficult negative to prove, and I think we'll have to, I mean, well, here in a minute, I think we need to talk a little bit more about that, because I think this week we've had this big kind of China and tariff issue, but yeah. before we get into that, uh, we need to thank, we have two new Patreon supporters this weekend, uh, oh. Jennifer and Libby, yeah, so thank you, Jennifer and Libby, for helping us out, we appreciate that. Um. This week, Chris, who recently sent us a contribution through PayPal, wrote, and this is really sweet, quote, It is so refreshing to hear you guys after listening to other podcasts. I've been considering this thought. Political ideology is good until it intentionally withholds compassion from any person, group, or thought pattern. That is where evil starts being bred. And so he goes on to thank us that we express compassion for everyone. And to that end, he wants to help support us and remember our podcast. And he is gonna become a regular Patreon supporter. And he thanks us for the great work we're doing. Um, Steve, who also made a very generous monthly uh, continuing pledge, uh, emailed to say that he's a past district officer uh, in Toastmasters, and he really admires our show. and thanks us for encouraging people to find common ground and so we just want to really say thank you to Chris and to Steve and to Jennifer and to Libby and everyone because when you become a supporter of the politics guy you don't just get the good feeling that comes with supporting thoughtful bipartisan and civil discussion you also get access to our supporters only show Um, and so just everybody knows last week uh, Mike and Jay were talking about some weird Philadelphia Eagles Super Bowl celebration things In the White House. Um, And Mike talked about how he wouldn't uh, shake Donald Trump's hand and some other things. But I won't tell you about all of them because what we're going to ask you to do is to please join Jennifer, Libby, Chris, Steve, and all of our other great Politic Guys supporters by going to slash support. That's the direct link. Or you can just go to politicsguys.com and then click on the uh, support link. And if you do that, you will then this week get a bonus show from myself and from Ken. And so we want to thank our supporters and suggest that you do that so that you don't miss out on this week's supporter show. Um, so thank you to all of you. As we move forward, though, we want to talk a little bit more. Maybe we can you know, bring another bias. We're going to come to my hometown and Ken's current hometown, uh, Ohio and Cincinnati, oh. uh, because this week the Supreme Court in a 5-4 opinion Upheld Ohio's efforts to purge voter rolls and minimize election fraud, theoretically. <coughs> Excuse me. As the New York Times rightfully noted, the opinion seeks to understand some dueling visions of voting in a democracy. So what happened? Well, Mr. Harman, uh, he sat out the 2010 tw- uh, midterm election, the 2012 presidential election, and the 2014 midterm election. Then he tried to vote in 2015. He wanted to vote against legalizing marijuana, and he found his name was not in the voter, voter rolls anymore. State officials informed him that they had sent him notice in 2011, and he had failed to respond. And as a result of that failure to respond, he'd been removed from the voter rolls. Um, Ohio actually has one of the more strict voter purge rules in the country. So after missing a single federal election, the state sends you a notice. If you don't respond to that notice, you're off the rolls. Harmon argued this violated the National Voter Registration Act of 1993 because it made failure to vote a trigger. Uh, the U.S. Uh, Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals in my hometown in yours, Ken, Cincinnati, yep. agreed. Um, the Supreme Court reversed that ruling and it argued that federal law said you simply cannot purge someone for not voting. But in Ohio, the purge is the result of the letter. Not the not voting, and therefore the failure to respond to the notice after not voting, is in fact consistent with the National Voter Registration Act. Breyer, writing for the dissent, argued the accuracy of voting rolls is not as important as, excuse me, that the accuracy of voting rolls does not justify erecting obstacles to preventing eligible voters from casting ballots. So what do you think about this Ken? I mean, this is, this is your area. Yeah. <laughs>
1: well, it, it, it is, it's sort of, my, I mean, my main area is constitutional law and this is a statutory case, but it is somewhat my area in Ohio is where I live. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think, I think it's a, um, it's a bad decision, uh, you know, both on the law and on the policy. Um, I think the, the, the statute, which you mentioned mo- most people know that statute as as by its informal name, the, voter vote. the motor motor voter act. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, motor voter, which is what put the um, uh, voting registration into the um, when you get a driver's license. This was one of the provisions of it in 1993. And it says people can't be thrown off the rolls for not voting. Um, Now, I think you explained it perfectly that the Supreme Court um, applied this very, I would say, tendentious argument where they said, well, when they throw people off the rolls um, for not responding to a letter that they get for because they didn't vote. Um, then that's not throwing them off for not voting. Um, I don't agree with that. I mean, the the letter is only generated because they didn't vote. Um, That letter is not sent to people who who did vote. Um, And so it's not like everybody has to respond to a letter in order to stay on the voter rolls. It's only people that that missed an election. Um, They do have to miss uh, more than one election. I think you said one, but it's one presidential election, but they have to miss the midterms on either side of it as well. So, um, So in Ohio, if they miss... Uh, a midterm, then a presidential election, then a midterm. Um, they will they will be thrown off the rolls if they haven't responded to a letter by then.
0: Oh, I, saw, uh, I misunderstood that. Then, as I, I apologize. My apologies.
1: Yeah, yeah. So it's not quite as it's not quite as tight as as you explained it, but it's still pretty tight. That's still the the shortest timeline in any state in the country um, for for throwing people off. And really, there's no reason for it. Um, if, people, if people vote uh, in other states or register in other states because they've moved or even move within the state and re-register at a different address, um, then the, 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 the place where they register elsewhere will auto- automatically notify. It goes into a national database. So people who register in one place don't stay on the rolls someplace else. So it's not like, it's not like people could be voting in two places. Um, uh, you know, I guess there's, they say there's some concern about if people have died or something. But, uh, you know, really, you could you could even in Ohio, we have provisional ballots um, rather than throwing them off the rolls, which actually makes them uh, ineligible to vote so that their vote will not be counted. Um, another way it could be done uh, if there was um, some concern about, uh, well, we don't know that this is still the same person voting. Um, just like what happens when people move without changing their address with the with the with the um, uh, Board of Elections. Um, they could be allowed to cast a provisional ballot, and that could be looked into afterwards, and their vote could be counted if it turns out that there's no uh, irregularity. Um, That that provisional ballot is used for a lot of other kinds of voting problems, primarily people who move locally. Um, So it's, uh, you know, there's there's the only real reason, um, I think, for wanting to throw people off these rolls is voter suppression, and that's exactly why the 1993 Motor Voter Act says that you can't throw people off the rolls just for not voting because that, that's a form of voter suppression.
0: So, yeah, I mean, I am not as sympathetic to this point of view, but I'm going to take it because I think it's worth kind of articulating it out because I think there really are kind of two competing views of voting. And one says is that, Voting should be easy. Everyone should have immediate access to it, I mean, and and that is what I think Justice Breyer was was outlining, kind of eloquently, in his dissent. For those who uh, go on and and uh, read the opinions, as a matter of fact, I'll post the opinions to the website. Um, but there is a competing view that says, look, what you really want to ensure is fairness, and you ensure fairness by making sure that you minimize. Any kind of form of even potential fraud, and so having the requirements for having IDs and having the requirements that you vote consistently—that this is not uh, suppression, but it's rather orderly democracy. So, to to that kind of point, what would you say, Ken?
1: Well, I'd say really it's a question of um, the the numbers and the evidence, right? So, the 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 kinds of uh, rules like this this rule in Ohio, if it had actually been in effect in the 2016 election, because um, the Secretary of State tried to put it in effect then, but uh, the Sixth Circuit Court stopped him. So, so 5,100 voters in Ohio that actually did vote, and all of whom were legal eligible voters, um, 5,100 of them would not have been allowed to vote. Now if you want to put that against, you know, how many cases are there um, in Ohio where it's been documented that, that dead people voted or, or people voted twice or ineligible voters voted? You know, you could count those cases on your fingers. So it's, it's really you're putting suppressing 5100 legitimate votes against the threat of, um, you know, one or two fraudulent votes. Um, I, I don't see that that's a, a, you know, I don't see that the, the, the um, weight of those two concerns is 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 very equal.
0: Yeah, and again, I mean, I'm I'm going to try to play the devil's advocate on this side. I think historically, you're going to have people point to elections in the past where you had certain cities that used potentially lax voter laws. We're looking at you, Chicago, uh, to <laughs> to attempt to basically circumvent uh, democratic practices. And so, why wouldn't you want to basically have a firewall against that in the future?
1: Well we don't have those kind of problems anymore. And, and particularly in Ohio, I mean, in Ohio, uh, not only do we have to have um, uh, two or three judges from each political party in every single polling place. um, And for, and for people who vote uh, by mail or whatever, um, you have those similar numbers um, in the board of elections where the, where the, the, the the envelopes are opened. um, But uh, you know, we have the, um, the, 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 Optical scanning that's used um, uh, by the voting machines. We keep that, and we keep the paper record. They can be um, uh, reconciled against each other. So, so in Ohio, you fill out bubbles on a piece of paper, and you feed that piece of paper into a computer that counts what uh, bubbles you filled out. And then at the end of the day, um, all of the pieces of paper that people cast are still inside that voting machine. So that if there has to be a recount, they can be compared against the tallies that the machine got. Um, every single person who checks in to vote. Um, they're checked out by a couple of Democrats and a couple of Republicans who are working at the polls. And when the machine tallies are counted out at the end, um, the the Democrat and Republican poll judges together um, watch the tallies come out and and have to hand sign um, that 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 everything was on the up and up uh, before those numbers are delivered to the Board of Elections. So I, I think the sort of fear of um, the the boogeyman of, of vote fraud um, is you know maybe based on practices that happened. A long time ago that there's a lot of safeguards against now. There's basically no evidence that anything like that goes on now. And it's, it's absolutely certain um, that these kind of restrictions um, uh, stop large numbers of eligible voters from, from voting. And again, the number that we know for Ohio for 2016 is 5,100. There's 5,100 people um, who had been purged by Secretary Husted for the ro- from the rolls for not voting who were in fact eligible who were able to vote in 2016 because of the Sixth Circuit court decision, which has just been reversed. So, you know, 5,100
0: is a lot. Mm -hmm. Well, and just to be clear, because I I know that social media will blow up if I'm not clear about this. I think on this one, Ken and I are maybe unfortunately very closely aligned. I agree with what you're saying, Ken. Uh, But I do want to kind of present that kind of other view, maybe kind of more the J view, if he was here uh, to kind of let us you know, kind of hear what that might be. But, you no, know, I, I I deeply agree with you. I think in, in visions of democracy that one ought to err on the side of the vote. Um, and, and you rightfully point out that we, as a result of historic practices at the local level, have lots of fail-safes and that additional purges will, would, would net minimal, if any, gains.
1: Yeah. And, 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 I, and I do want to reemphasize also the provisional ballot mechanism that in, in Ohio for other kinds of voting issues, you know, you often have people who move uh, locally and and they haven't notified the board of elections about their address change. Um, and so they, they when they when they show up to vote, they may be not in the precinct that they should be in um, for, for those kind of things. We use a provisional ballot mechanism where they can they can cast a vote. It gets sealed into an envelope. It doesn't get counted until 10 days later after there's time to check up on their bona fides. Um, If their bona fides don't check out, it's never counted. Uh, There's absolutely no reason that that mechanism couldn't be similarly used um, in in the situation where someone's uh, missed a few elections and not responded to a postcard.
0: Yeah. I mean, and again, that's easy to miss. The, anyway, it's very easy yeah. to miss those kinds of things. But on something that we might have some more disagreement, Ken, maybe I'm going to find out okay. I'm curious about yep. this. Uh-huh. Uh, so last week on the show, we had a lot of discussion about the G7 meeting. We've talked about it a little bit more. But what has happened this week is, is that Donald Trump has followed through with threats to crack down on China for unfair trade practices. He imposed a 25% tariff on 50 billion worth of Chinese imports on Friday. China responded swiftly later on Friday focusing on 50 billion worth of American goods including beef, poultry, tobacco. And cars. It appears that Mr. Trump is ready early next week to impose further tariffs and responses to China's response, and China is, as a result, likely to back away from a $70 billion agreement to buy American agricultural and energy products. So these tariffs are in fact in line with Trump's campaign pain promises. One of his biggest promises was to crack down on trade practices that he has says cost Americans jobs. As a matter of fact, on Friday, Trump argued that the relationship with China had been, quote, very unfair for a very long time, end quote. And further that, quote, tariffs are essential to prevent further unfair transfers of American technology and intellectual property to China. Which will protect American jobs? End quote. So, what do you think about this kind of economic policy? We had talked, we had started to hint a little bit earlier about what happened in the G seven, and obviously this week, the yeah. big story being with China, which has been kind of the on again, off again uh, question.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I look at the China tariff issue differently than I look ab- uh, at the issue where he's threatening tariffs against against Canada and and Europe and and you know I, I find those much. I find those to be no-brainers. That that's completely the wrong thing to do to put tariffs against uh, Canada, Europe. You know, with China, it, it you know, the, I, in principle, um, it, it could be good for the U.S. to put uh, tariffs against China because China has low-wage jobs that are, that um, you know move move there from America because they're low-wage. And and if these were tariffs that were targeted um, to make it uh, uh, more expensive to to offshore uh, what could be good American jobs to China. Um, you know, from economic policy, I could see some justification for that. Um, I'm not sure that these are, um, all that well targeted. I don't even know what he's talking about when he says that this could affect, uh, uh intellectual property violations and things like that. I'm not sure how tariffs could do that. Um, uh, but I, uh, um, I I have to kind of reserve judgment. I think, uh, uh in principle, and this may be where you're going, that as someone who's a bit from the left, I'm a little bit more open to tariffs against uh, uh, low-wage countries. Um, I'm not. I'm I'm basically a free trader like you are, though, and I'm totally opposed to tariffs against high-wage countries. I think we should be in free trade with high-wage countries, but uh, yeah, you know, countries like China, it's it's complicated. Um. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts
0: on it. (laughs) Well, you know, I know we had a lot of things where we were going to agree, so it's always great we can kind of end on something. Because as listeners know, one of the things that I had argued about way back during the election is that when you have a campaign that in some ways I think was dominated by the rhetoric of Trump and Sanders, that really free trade came under attack. Because both Trump and Sanders, as a matter of fact, this morning, just to remind myself, like, you know, we're... You know sometimes you think about things differently, you know Great. Sanders argues continues to argues that he's quote against most free trade agreements, including NAFTA and with yeah. china uh, and with Canada, <laughs> <Great>. <laughs> which is interesting uh, and he actually argued that we need to pull out of all of those agreements, and one of the ones he hits is the one that actually Trump is hitting, which is the permanent normal trade relations um with uh, China now. You know, from my point of view, one of the things that has put me in the re- in the republican in Campkin has been a commitment to free trade so as listeners probably know right I'm a libertarian leaning republican a libertarian kind of republican, and so to see both parties now take this protectionist um tract is very disappointing to me and I don't see there being that big of a difference between what he's doing with the G7 and China. I mean, he's being, cons- he is sadly, in my opinion, being consistent, right? So if these kinds of trade practices are bad, then he's across the board trying to limit them. And I, and I think this, this is what we set ourselves up for in 2016. When two of our major, I mean, it it really fell to Hillary Clinton to be the one person I remember when she was um, debating Bernie Sanders to basically say, wait a second, free trade is what's gotten us where we are, uh, which is a fascinating point of view. You don't generally think of that as coming from the mainstream Democratic candidate.
1: Well, it is different free trade with uh, Canada and Europe versus free trade with um, uh, uh, China because Canada and Europe um, are high wage countries. Right? So, so competing with them doesn't um, cause uh, American jobs to go to those countries for the purpose of paying lower wages than here. Um, you know, trade with China does do that. So I, I think it is different. Um, I, I basically think the, the only argument because uh, like you, I sort of default to a presumption in favor of free trade, but, but I think to me, the only argument for why you would ever rebut that presumption would be, well, if, if um, free trade with, with very low-wage countries Um, could cause um, uh, American employers to offshore jobs to those low-wage countries solely for the purpose of paying um, uh, very low wages, and then we lose those jobs. Um, So I I see that as a circumstance that's unique to the low-wage countries and not applicable to Canada or or Europe. And so I I wouldn't see any reason to depart uh, from, from ordinary free trade principles with respect to Canada and Europe.
0: On that particular issue, though, but for countries to have rising wages, you have to have a competition of things being produced in that country. And so as companies begin to uh, flee, potentially, in that kind of view, to another country, that will lead to rising wages in the other country. As a matter of fact, I would point to some of the things that have happened with India. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that the thought you know, that this job suck was going to be India. But then what eventually happens is is that wages in India for many, especially in urban areas where there had been people going overseas, increased increase to the point where it no longer made sense to try to do that. And so, while I agree that you can have short-term imbalances with low-wage countries, that the market itself corrects that function, and that's actually what both brings increased uh, discourse between countries, because you have increased amounts of trade, but it also raises the level of living and the wages for the low-wage country in question, eventually.
1: Yeah, I don't know about that with big countries like China or India, actually. I I think there's so many people in China and so many people in India also who aren 't even in the modern economy that um, you know there 's an enormous capacity um, to to just offer low wage jobs and and get people to take them uh, in those countries you 'd have to have all the people who aren 't even participating in the economy start participating in the economy. Before it would be uh, before you'd have the kind of upward pressure on wages that you're talking about. I think.
0: Well, I mean, while that is in in fact true, the your argument argument there is is that there's somehow some kind of max number of human population where there can be high paying jobs. So while you're right that those markets have not been labor tapped yet. Um, that doesn't mean that all of those potential workers are actually true potential workers, even in low uh, low areas. Otherwise, China wouldn't be still attempting to industrialize those areas, right? So to say that there's more workers who would still work, well, that's true, but that doesn't mean they're prepared to do the kinds of jobs that would be uh, uh, offshored. Um, And even if you did eventually, assuming, I mean, again, we today have how much larger of a population, and yet we still have seen in most countries rising wages. So to say that just because you have an additional amount of population doesn't necessarily mean that you have to see a f- forever future of low wages.
1: Well, we haven't um, had rising wages here. It's probably been 35 years um, that, that, you know, other than in the top five or 10% of the, 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 uh, the income spectrum, um, there have been rising wages in real dollars in, in America. Um, they've been pretty stagnant for a long time now for for the the bottom ninety percent, uh, and uh, you know I, I don't I, I just don't know you know I, I'm not um, gonna I I, I I feel kind of cross purposes here as I guess <laughs> you do to some extent because really I, I have to think that t- the more you talk about this at a sort of general level the more I have to agree with you that free trade is the is the best policy generally. Um, I think I do think that sometimes you want to look at this at a more specific level and say, well, what what's the effect? You know, when when we fill up our WalMarts with products that are made in China, you know, of course consumers get the benefit that the stuff at Walmart is cheap and and people like that. But um, well, and and, all the, those,
0: and they can then spend those dollars other places as well. Of course, continue.
1: Yeah, but all the all those products that are actually in Walmart that are made in China um you know 35 40 years ago those products would have been made uh in america uh by people by americans getting paid uh much better wages um than what the chinese people who are making them now are getting paid so you know th- there is a loss there and uh and and in a world of increasing um uh, uh digitization and mechanization you know there there's not going to be as much need for um workers to Make things as as there used to be. You know, we've got an increasing world population. At the same time, we've got um, incredibly increasing productivity because of because of technology. And uh, and so, you know what what are what are all these people going to do for a living? And uh, and so, at a certain point, if you could have you know universal free trade, and and the lowest wage taker would do every job, um, it seems like in many sectors the the wages could go pretty much pr- approaching zero.
0: You know, and that's that's an interesting argument, and, you know, we won't have time to, to completely piece it out, but it's fascinating to me because I think sometimes we have to be a little cautious or at least maybe a little humble about thinking about the future, because while I agree with what you're saying about the production of the physical manifestation of stuff, it's difficult to say what it'll be that we'll be producing and creating in the future. So, for instance, you know, at one point in time, you might have said, well, what are we going to do when we don't have, you know, horse and buggy makers anymore, but of course, we were around the corner from things like airplanes and different kinds of trains and automobiles. And so in the digital world, in the same way, I'm not sure like what will be the digital things that we produce. I mean, today, who would have thought of the billions of dollars that we do in production of code? Um, and it's difficult to say what will be the code of the future. And that's a, that's a kind of a production. It's just one that maybe many of us had not... Um, considered as a possibility because it's it's a it's a round technological bend and that's i think one of the things that when you're talking about that kind of default position to free trade that you have faith in the idea that uh that humans will continue to produce new and interesting things even when we ourselves personally cannot fathom what that would be
1: yeah of course you're right about that but the the one caveat i'd put there is that um the kinds of future production that you're talking about, um, including, you know, software code, which you mentioned, or, or the things we can't fathom yet, um, it's increasingly going to be the uh, higher and higher educated people who can produce that stuff. And it's going to take smaller numbers of them to do it. So, I mean, Google or Facebook today are, are worth probably more in real dollars uh, than General Motors was ever worth. But they're not employing the numbers of people at the at the wage levels that, that companies like General Motors were producing. And if you've got um, machines you know, so capable now of providing for our material needs, then it seems like um, the kinds of sectors that are going to be able to employ very large numbers of people who are not highly educated and, and pay them decent wages... Um, it's, it's just hard for me to see how that comes back. I mean, it, it, I can see how there could be, you know, who would have imagined Facebook or Google and now they're worth billions and billions and there'll be future things like that. But remember that Facebook and Google are not employing super large numbers of people relative to manufacturing industries and, and that the people they are employing are, are, you know,
0: much higher educated than the average person. I would say that, for instance, like if you look at, say, an Apple, that you probably can't just, although it'd be an interesting study, as you suggest, to maybe compare, you know, the the uh, real dollar comparison from, say, an Apple or a Google to uh, a General Motors. But you also have to include in that number. So without an Apple, you don't have the, what is it now, the $1 trillion worth of companies that produce Uh, applications for Apple products so you you know in one way you might have to include those into the Apple when you consider the comparison between between, say a General Motors and a uh, and an Apple but that'd be a fascinating study as you were saying that I'm thinking I wonder how we could set this up (laughs) you know and try to make that happen Uh, but I think that we've actually gone a little bit long this this (laughs) morning so I think we'll need to stop here and it's been wonderful talking with you Um, And if you'd like to hear more from me and Ken, we're not done yet. In just a few minutes, we're going to be recording the Politics Guys Supporters exclusive show where we're going to be talking about some fascinating things, including my running and technology. So we're going to see what you guys think about, you know, what you put in your ears. Interesting we talk about Apple. Um, So that's all I'll say about that for now. That is it. Thanks, and I hope that you like what you heard. Listeners, you can head to politicsguys.com support or head to politicsguys.com and click on support. Uh, and there you can also subscribe. I'm going to ask if you will share this episode with one friend. If you can rate this uh, podcast on iTunes or on Spotify, that would be amazing and it helps us. And if you go and uh, support us now, you will be able to download the Politics Guys support Order exclusive show. As always, if you want to reach out to us, you can always hit us up at mail at politicsguys.com. You can hit us up on Facebook at facebook.com slash politicsguys, or as always on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jerry Carson, Trey Orndorf, and Bruce Johnson. This episode was produced by Trey Orndorf. We'll have a new show on Monday. We hope to see you then.